Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Casey Landers, a PhD student soon to graduate from the University of Miami. We'll be talking about her experiences raising a family as a graduate student, her research on the philosophy of perception and its relation to sexism, as well as her experiences going on the academic job market. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Casey, you can email her at caseyleelanders at gmail.com. Casey Landers, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So at what point did you decide that graduate study was the right move for you? Yeah, I sort of settled on a career as a philosophy professor pretty early on. There wasn't much of a decision-making process other than I want to be a philosophy professor, so what do I need to do to make that happen? And this was around like age 16 or 17 because I had been exposed to some philosophy whenever I was in high school. Not that I took a philosophy class, but they just had injected some lessons in there for me. And uh, I soaked it up and just basically became obsessed. I don't know. (laughs) And how did you then find the transition going from your master's studies to your Mm -hmm. PhD studies? Yeah, I found that the master's, the terminal master's that I did was a really good introduction to what it would be like as a PhD student. I didn't find the transition hard at all, honestly. I I feel like the terminal master's programs generally do a pretty good job of preparing you for what comes next. I do think that there's a bit, like socially speaking, there's a bit of a difference because in master's program, there are a lot of people coming in and coming out, whereas in PhD programs, you have people who are there for a lot longer And so, you know, your friendships and your relationships with the professors, with your advisor, that gets, you know, more solidly built um, and as it should, right, as you would expect. I do think that there are a lot of people who are going for terminal masters now rather than just jumping straight to the PhD has become way more popular for terminal masters. And I, I think that there's some division as to whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. For me personally, I saw it as a good thing because it allowed me to go through a stage where I was like, is this really what I want to do in light of the horrendous job market that awaits (laughs) me at the end of this path? But in a lot of my colleagues and my masters, they also went through the same thing. And many of them did end up leaving and have, you know, enjoyable lives outside of philosophy doing something in like, for example, law or teaching high school or something like that. So it it gives you a good taste I think it's an accurate taste. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And you mentioned beforehand that you had some interesting things going on in a non-academic sense when you came to begin your PhD program. What did that look like for you? Yes. So when I applied to PhD programs, I was pregnant, but I didn't know it. And then when I found out I was pregnant, it was before I had received any answers back. And so I was like, wow, I really hope that I get in at the place where my partner is. (laughs) Uh, And luckily I did. And so that's where I ended up going. The decision ended up being very easy for me. But I started my PhD program eight and a half months pregnant. And then three days afterwards, I gave birth to my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) 
that, that's intense. <laughs> it was, it was really intense. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine. I mean, uh, I, I just kind of wondered myself, were there any kind of support mechanisms that were in place that kind of helped you manage the early stages of your PhD while you're raising your newborn? Yeah, there were, but there weren't any, I would say like official university support mechanisms. Most of the support came from individuals within the department, especially folks who had children, professors who had children were very like giving. Like I had just like baby crib, baby clothes, you know, all sorts of baby stuff given to me. It was really nice. But there wasn't any like anything official within the department or the university itself. Most of the support just came from individual professors being flexible with me. I ended up taking two graduate seminars that first semester and I took an independent study. But with the independent study, I, I basically took an incomplete and then finished the incomplete about a year and a half later when things are a little bit more manageable. So, yeah, that first semester... I would bring my daughter with me to class. I would baby wear her where she was like wrapped up like in a little cocoon on my chest. And that was that was tough because I was very self-conscious about it. Like I wanted to be able to be in the seminar with everybody and discussing philosophy. But at the same time, I'm also like really self-conscious that my baby is like being distracting and like her little coos or cries or anything like that. So then other times my the secretary of the department would just hold her while I was in class or I would just leave her at home and I would have you know three hours in a seminar discussing philosophy which is actually a really wonderful break from early parenthood <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then moving through the rest of your PhD studies was there anything that you found helped in managing the uh, the almost conflicting needs of um, your academic studies with your uh, familial responsibilities at home to be honest no I don't think so there's not a lot of support within departments generally or within universities generally. I mean, like, I don't want to speak generally <laughs> because my experience is tailored to one university. And I also don't want to speak ill of them, but it is, I think it is rare to be a graduate student with a family. I don't think that there's really much in place to make it easier. You just end up having a very different graduate student experience and you've you've just got to manage it, you know, having family responsibilities with with your studies and your teaching and all that stuff. You just you've got to figure out a way to make it work. There's not much <laughs> not much help, unfortunately. You can find some solace in the other graduate students who also have families. They really understand what you're going through. But un there's again not that many students who are like that. So not as hard to find folks to really get what it's like to empathize with and to, you know, have a bit of empathy or like solidarity is what I'm looking for. Mm. Solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a bit of a negative, but it's the truth, I think, or at least it was my experience. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the demands are also going to be high when you're working post PhD as well, you know, when you're on the tenure track. With that in mind, would you go so far as to say that your time as a graduate student isn't really the right time uh, or the best or most preferable time to be raising a family? Or is your impression that, you know, academia is hard, there are a lot of things to manage whenever it suits you in a non-academic sense is best? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I was actually just thinking about this the other day. Would I do it differently if I could? Mm. And 
One thing that's nice about graduate school is you do have quite a bit of flexibility and you do have fewer responsibilities job-wise than you do as, say, a tenure-track professor, but you don't have the financial freedom that you would have as a professor. And so I think, you know, it worked out for us. It was tough, but it worked out. And the flexibility that we had in our schedules really allowed it to to be something that in the end was you know, a stressful, but overall enjoyable thing. And I I don't think I would do it differently, to be honest. I think that if I could do it, other people can do it. It's just most people want to wait till they are more financially secure and that have a better idea of what their future looks like. And that's totally understandable. I think it can be done. It's just, it's, it's quite difficult, but for me, it worked out. So I, I don't think I would change anything. I would say that the the financial situation played a huge role in it being a difficult thing. I mean, living on a graduate student budget, trying to raise a family, keep in mind I was in Miami, so the cost of living is extraordinarily high there. You know, that might play a factor in your decision-making as well. You know, maybe if you live in a place where the graduate student budget that you get covers a lot of your cost of living, then maybe raising a family is financially within your reasonable bounds. But cost of daycare, stuff like that, it's it really adds on to your budget. So I think in the end, waiting until you have a more secure financial base, that totally makes more sense, I think, <laughs> in, in some ways, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Moving into the uh, current areas that you're actively researching, particularly mm-hmm. with regards to the philosophy of perception and the philosophy mm-hmm. of psychology, um, how from your earlier experiences in philosophy did you find yourself transitioning into these areas? Yeah. I came into my undergrad career wanting to study both philosophy and psychology, and I've just always carried that combination of interests with me. And so the philosophy of perception, philosophy of psychology is a really, really nice, fruitful place where all of my past studies in philosophy and psychology as an undergrad came to fruition, came to meet and in interesting ways. So I think that's you know, there are a lot of different areas in philosophy of perception and philosophy of psychology that we could focus on, you know, given that background. But early in my PhD, I took a seminar and I asked a question in the seminar and that question turned into my paper for that class. And then that turned into what's called a qualification paper, something for our specific PhD requirements. And then that turned into basically part of my dissertation. So I like being able to really trace my current interests in a way to like just like a single question that I had in a class. Part of the reason why I took that class is because I was already interested in philosophy and psychology from earlier on. Hmm. I mean, I I love the idea of just an idea kind of snowballing over and over until it becomes this, you know, this really like sort of substantial piece of work. And that's something that's just so, yeah, I mean, you can like tracing the idea back to its origin is fascinating. Yeah, totally. So you mentioned like philosophy of perception. What are are the kinds of like questions that you're currently thinking about within this literature in this philosophical area? Yeah. So one question concerns what kinds of properties we visually experience. Another way of putting that is how specific in categorizing things does vision, does your visual experience get? So, you know, obviously we visually experience things like shapes and colors and textures and motions and directions. 
But there's substantial debate concerning whether like other kinds of properties are also in that visual experience for you. So, for example, the property of being a cat or the property of being my cat, Sylvie, those are both fairly what we would call high-level properties, a natural kind property and some other kind of property. And there's substantial debate concerning whether or not those kinds of properties are also in our visual experience for us or whether we kind of have a more bare-bones visual experience of just uh, more of like the superficial properties that are given to us. If there is such a thing as perceiving a cat in virtue of being a cat, does that imply that there's some role that our cognition is playing in the way that we perceive the cat and the fact that we can perceive it, you know, as a cat? Yeah, that's a good question. It really depends on the kind of property that you're talking about. I think that there are some properties, some high-level properties that could be kind of evolutionarily ingrained into your visual system such that... You're not really giving a role to cognition to represent or to experience that property. So, for example, properties that are really related to survival or, for example, the property of being edible or the property of being animate or the property of being an animal, those are arguably properties that that could be in there, so to speak, because of some sort of evolutionary reason And you don't really need cognitive influence to help you visually experience those properties. But then there are all kinds of other properties, uh, like culturally specific properties, where it seems like it seems more likely to me that you're going to have to give a role to cognition to represent those properties. So like the property of being a teacup or the property of being a carburetor or the property of being John Malkovich, (laughs) these are all fairly specific, tailored properties to one's culture and one's past learning experience that aren't going to be ingrained from any sort of evolutionary process. And so I think those kinds of properties are much more likely. If you do say, if they are indeed visually experienced, I think we're going to have to say, okay, there's probably some role that cognition is playing in helping us to represent those properties. I mean, that's, that's just so interesting how, particularly with the respect to like the so like social cultural properties could influence perception in some way. I'm curious about how, how that would affect kind of the relationships we have with others. So how would the, you know, cognition affect perception when it comes to just our interactions with other, other people and like how we kind of make judgments about them? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting work that can be done from this, from like a, a social perspective, like working on social perception, what sorts of properties we ascribe to individuals can be, for example, maybe influenced by our biases. So like, for example, if I have implicit biases against another group of people, you know, that might affect how I genuinely visually experience them. And there's some philosophers, you know, to shout out them, Susanna Siegel, Shannon Spaulding, they're doing really interesting work that explore how these implicit biases can somehow shape our social perception of others. So I gather that you're doing some research on this topic with regards sexism. And I think the how there may be different biases that play into the way that we perceive people of different groups, for example, of different genders. Would you be able to talk about what that kind of looks like within the context of your research? Sure. Yeah. So this is a new branch of my work. So it's not like the most polished, but it's something that I'm really 
fascinated by and interested in, partly because I'm also just really interested in feminist philosophy. And this is a really interesting area where philosophy of perception and feminist philosophy meet. I don't think there's really been anybody who's exploring sexist perception, at least from the analytic philosophy of perception side of things. So I'm excited about this. But the basic idea is, you know, assuming that we can get these complex high level properties that are that we visually experience. So we're like, we kind of have to assume this view. But assuming that, it seems like there are going to be many instances where perception can misattribute or misrepresent individuals in ways that are unfair or wrong them. Here's an example. Let's say that Bob and Mary are in an office meeting with their colleagues and it's an important office meeting and Sally says X, Y, and Z and she's, you know, excited. Maybe she sounds like a little bit loud, a little bit like authoritative in what she's saying. And then some people's reactions to that are like, wow, she's like really overdoing it. She's being really aggressive and in your face and like this is not... I don't like her. This is not how she should act. And then Bob says very similar things, acts with a very similar demeanor. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's actually a good suggestion. I like how assertive he is. You know, he just he knows he has a, an idea and he's just going with it. So I don't mean to spend too much time on this example, but the basic idea is that the individuals are attributing different properties to Bob and Sally, partly on the basis of a sexist ideas about how men and women should behave. And one interesting question is, can these seep into perception such that the visual experiences of the colleagues, of Bob and Sally, could they actually be different? So, so could the way that they visually experience Sally in this context be different than the way that they visually experience Bob, just in virtue of these background sexist expectations that they have about how men and women should behave? You know, I have a series of examples that along this line, like, for example, in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, there were many, many people who described Hillary Clinton as having like a shrill voice, for example, like she just sounds so shrill. But if you look back at, for example, the presidential debates, both her and Donald Trump would like talk with a lot of enthusiasm and like they both had kind of loud voices and yet she was described as shrill and he was described as something else. <laughs> so that has more to do with auditory perception. But again, we might think that women can be maybe unfairly perceived. Certain properties can be attributed to them that shouldn't be attributed to them. Or um, certain properties should also be attributed to men when they act in the same way, but they're not. This all leads to the question of whether or not you can wrong someone by how you perceive them. This question really stems out of some work that's being done by, say, Rima Basu on dogsastic wronging. So dogsastic wronging, the basic idea here is that I can wrong you just by believing a certain thing about you, irrespective of how I treat you or any sort of action that might come about as a result of this belief. The belief itself can wrong you. And I think we can take this sort of theory or way of thinking about things and ask the same thing about perception. 
if it makes sense, at least to say that there is such a thing as doxastic wronging, maybe there's such a thing as perceptual wronging as well. Now, of course, there are going to be a lot of people who don't want to get on board <laughs> for doxastic wronging at the beginning. And a lot of the problems that plague this notion of doxastic wronging are going to plague this idea of saying that perception can wrong. So like one of the big questions that I, I need to work out, which I haven't worked out completely yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of thinking about is so when you perceive someone or when you have a visual experience of someone, it doesn't really seem like what is happening is voluntary. It seems like perception is quite automatic and bottom up and you don't have much control over it except for like where you look, where your attention goes. Beyond that, it doesn't seem like it's under much control. You might think that that seems to be a problem if you want to say that perception can wrong others because typically we we only think that you can wrong others if like you could have done otherwise or if you have control over it so squaring this notion of voluntary control with having the capacity to wrong is something that i'm trying to work out and think about right now yeah that seems very much worth thinking about and very interesting as well yeah just with respect to another topic, particularly your position right now is that you're, you were on the job market quite recently, and I think you've successfully dealt with the job market. I want to just start off by talking about, you know, what was the timeline like applying for jobs during your PhD and sort of how did you manage doing this while you were doing your studies? Yeah, the job market situation was very grueling and stressful. And, you know, I'm telling a tale as old as time, right? I applied to a handful of jobs during my fifth year before COVID hit and nothing bit. And so then COVID hit, I just kind of put the job market and finishing my PhD on the back burner, not because I had a choice, mainly just <laughs> because that's what I had to do. And then finally, in my final year, my seventh year, I was in a bit of, a, I think, a unique situation in that my partner, who is also a philosopher had already acquired a job as a tenure track assistant professor at a local community college that he had been adjuncting at throughout his PhD. He had job security and was making a pretty good pay for, you know, relative to what we were used to as graduate students. And so I told myself that I wasn't going to apply to certain kinds of jobs where we would give up that job security. So for me, unfortunately, postdocs and visiting assistant professorships were off the table then, which I think is unusual because I think most of the time when you're finishing up your PhD and you're going on the job market, you're kind of doing a shotgun approach where you just basically apply to a bunch of postdocs, visiting assistant positions and tenure track positions. And so I was actually a little bit more selective given my unique situation. We didn't want to give up his his position just for me to go have, you know, a one or two or three year temporary position with no job security. Those kinds of thoughts really bear way more weight when you have a kid. So I, I applied very selectively this past year. I applied only to jobs that were tenure track positions at research universities or research oriented universities. And I only applied to job ads that, that were very tailored job ads for someone in my area of expertise. So I wasn't applying to any open jobs, for example. And, and so the amount of people that I was competing with 
was way smaller. I ended up having having some good luck. I, I got two interviews and the interview process was really, really, really grueling. And I didn't have to do any flyouts because I think people are so used to Zoom now and they're like, oh, we can save a lot of money this way that we're not going to fly individuals out. I think that was pretty popular this year. I know that there were also still some flyouts, but I was exhausted just doing two, two or three days of meetings for an inter- for interviews just online. And I, I, I can't imagine what, what folks have to go through whenever they do flyouts. I mean, it's just, you have to be on the whole time. Whereas at least whenever you do zoom interviews, you get to take breaks and, you know, decompress, maybe do some yoga or something. <laughs> <laughs> I applied to some jobs and went through the interview process. And there were some jobs where I went through all of that and I ended up not getting the job. And that was really heartbreaking. You put in so much of your time meeting individuals and, talking to them and envisioning yourself as a part of their department. And then, you know, they go with someone else. It it can be quite heartbreaking, but you know, again, it's a tale as old as time. Don't take it personally. You can't take it personally in academia. There's so many other things going on in individual departments as to why someone else might be a better fit that you, you really shouldn't take it as a knock against you, but it's just so hard not to. But yeah, I ended up securing a job at Texas State University, which I'm very excited about. I just I just moved out here to Texas. I'm originally from Texas, so I'm very excited to be returning to my home state just to be closer to family and stuff. It's a kind of a dream come true for me. I, I feel a bit feel very lucky to have had things worked out in the way that they did. I wish I could go back and tell third or fourth year me and just like give her a hug and be like it's all going to be okay. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. And finally, do you think that there's anything that you did throughout your PhD that put you in a position to be, you know, landing your dream job straight out of your PhD or, or otherwise, is there anything that you think actually in hindsight you might've done differently that could have helped you even more? Great question. Yeah. So when I went on the job market this year, I felt like I was kind of already doing the job that I was applying for. I've been teaching a lot. I've been partaking in service roles, various kinds of service roles in the department at the university. And I have been very active research-wise. I wouldn't say very active, but I I have been active research-wise. So I'd say the fact that I have a single authored publication really helped. The fact that I showed that I was active on the conference circuit. I'm not really sure how much folks really care about you going to specific kinds of conferences. I think that they just want to see that you're like out there putting yourself out there. And so I was doing that. And I think I also kind of spread out my interests a little bit whenever it came to my area of competence. I had either the burden or the opportunity kind of depends on how you look at it to, to teach a lot at my PhD program. And that also gave me, I had a fair amount of leeway in terms of what I could teach. And so I found myself teaching biomedical ethics and feminist philosophy, things that had nothing really to do with my core area of research at the time. But that, I think, really allowed me to diversify the way that I present myself to committees I'm somebody who can talk shop in biomedical ethics, even though I don't have publications. I've taught it a lot, for example, um, and I can add to whatever applied ethics program you have that you're trying to get up and running or that you have up and running, which is like, I feel like every university at this point, right? <laughs> so diversifying your AOC, what courses you teach, 
what courses you can teach is a really good idea. I think that helped me out. Great. Well, Casey, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. This has been such a nice time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.